You're listening to TIP. He said that we'll know Vanguard's mission has begun to create a better world for investors when our market share starts to erode. And again, I, I found that really wild because can you find anywhere else in the history of asset management, if not business, where the CEO tells the staff our market share eroding would be like good and it would create a better world? On today's episode, I'm joined by the ETF expert, Eric Balchunas. Eric is a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, where he leads the ETF and passive fund research and contributes to Bloomberg Opinion. He is a frequent speaker at industry events and conferences, as well as the co-creator of the Bloomberg podcast, Trillions, and Bloomberg TV's ETF IQ. Eric also just released his new book, The Bogle Effect, which uncovers how John Bogle and Vanguard turned Wall Street inside out and saved investors trillions. During the episode, I chat with Eric about what an ETF is and why it's such a popular investment tool amongst retail investors, how Vanguard was originally created after Bogle was ousted out of his own company, why Vanguard's business model was so successful at attracting new investors, Eric's thoughts on a potential index fund bubble, how Vanguard is disrupting the financial services industry, Eric's thoughts around the effects of a Bitcoin ETF in the future, and much more. Vanguard is just an incredible company that has pioneered the way for everyday investors to utilize ETFs to build long-term wealth. Just over the past 10 years, Vanguard has seen inflows of over $1 billion per day. I repeat, $1 billion per day over the past 10 years. In 2006, Vanguard's total assets eclipsed $1 trillion, and in 2020, it crossed $7 trillion, a 7x increase in just 14 years. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode covering the brilliance of what has become Vanguard with Eric Balchunas. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today I'm joined by Eric Balchunas. Eric, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Clay. Thanks for having me. Eric, I really appreciate you coming onto the show. I've been really looking forward to having you on the podcast after going through your new book, The Bogle Effect. Your book's all about how John Bogle had a just an enormous impact on the financial industry with ETFs and his company, Vanguard. Before we dive in to talk about the book, could you outline for the audience what an ETF is for those who aren't familiar? Yeah, sure. So I'm an ETF analyst, which stands for Exchange Traded Fund. It's effectively a mutual fund where a mutual fund, first of all, let's just go with that, which is an investment where you have a lot of stocks or bonds. And the whole idea of a mutual fund is diversification because anybody who's tried to pick stocks or bonds, you know that you could be really right or really wrong. And over time, you tend to get burned by the really wrong ones. Like some of those like Peloton or something is really like stock like that. It's, you know, if you bought that thinking that was your lot of, you know, that was going to be your big winner, you're going to be crying. People invented diversification to solve this. So you own 200, 300, 500 stocks. Then if one of them blows up or goes full Peloton, you barely feel it. That said, if you have a stock that has a huge surge, you also barely feel that too. So you really just lower your volatility. It's like betting on all the horses at the racetrack at once. And that way you can sort of slowly benefit from what stock investing is all about, which is that people get up every day, they go to work and they create value at corporations. That value is transferred to them in the form of dividends and earnings growth. 
So what you're trying to do is ride capitalism's coattails. And that's why stocks are such a great place to be. But diversification helps because it takes away the need to try to pick one. So mutual funds came out to do that. Some actively pick them for you, but largely stay diverse. And then index funds came out after that, which is what Bogle really pioneered, which is, let's not try to pick stocks. We'll just track the S&P 500. And that's another version of diversification. ETFs came along after that and said, hey, why don't we do the same thing, but we'll let these things trade on the exchange like a stock. So basically, an ETF is simply a mutual fund that trades on an exchange. And it's a big hit. Mutual funds, you get in and out once a day. People just like the fact that you can buy and sell an ETF anytime you want. ETFs are, I would say, also a little more innovative and they serve a younger audience. You know, if you actually, I know this is the millennial podcast, if you looked at age group and percentage of portfolio in ETFs, it's completely inversely correlated to age. The younger you are, the more likely it is that you have ETFs. So I would say mutual funds are sort of like the boomer type structure. ETFs are more for the younger crowd. And ultimately, the younger crowd will grow up and they'll, who knows, maybe something will come in after that. But that's sort of where we stand now. But an ETF isn't that different than a mutual fund. It's all about getting diversification. And then obviously, there's different ways and packages to do that. Why do you think that the ETFs cater to the younger generations more to the older? I think the ETFs fit into the digitization of things. You know, They trade all day on exchange. You can see the price. They also speak to younger people a little more. You know, the thematic investing, there's not a lot of mutual funds doing that. Younger people launch ETFs. Again, you know, you go around and you look, especially the smaller issuers. I mean, I'm probably older than most of them. You know, I'm Gen X, but there's a lot of younger issuers. And I think they also like the lower fees. I think millennials, I actually studied millennial portfolios one time and through the TD Ameritrade survey. And I found that their portfolios really were futuristic. They had real cheap ETFs in the core, like Vanguard funds, and then they went hog wild on the outside. And that's kind of what we're seeing everybody do now. And I think they like ETFs for the core so they can go on like a platform like Robinhood or Schwab or, or TD Ameritrade, and they can have like three or four ETFs that basically for almost no fee, that gets them like 70% of what they need. And then they can go crypto or Kathy Wood or ARC or Themes. So when I wrote that five, six years ago, I've now really seen the flows do that. And so now our big theme is this idea of barbelling, where the money is going to either dirt cheap or shiny objects. And that's largely, I think, in a weird way, pioneered by millennials who seem to have, have done that early on in their portfolios, at least according to TD Ameritrade surveys. It's tough to get this data because it's not like they don't just share all millennials' accounts online all the time. Sometimes there's surveys or a company, a brokerage platform will, will show you Schwab does some good ones. So we've pieced all this together. We look at the flows and we feel like that's sort of what millennials like doing. And I think ETFs also, they have tickers that are three or four letters. They fit nicely all together because you know a USB, right? It fits into any computer anywhere. ETFs, in my opinion, standardize a lot of things. So like whether you want oil futures, triple leverage queues, Vanguard, ETFs all serve up all this stuff in a way that feels the same and fits into anywhere. It's almost like a USB port in a way. And so I think the technology and the low cost are what drive millennials to ETFs. The first part of what you said definitely rang true with me where you know, I have my baseline index fund portfolio that's like you know, the foundation of my portfolio. And then you know, I have fun with things like Bitcoin and maybe some individual stocks as well. But I've been listening to the Investors Podcast and we study billionaires for years and they follow the Warren Buffett philosophy of you know, buy and hold for a very long time. So I'm really not a trader at all. So you're not trading per se, but you are adding on some speculative assets on top 
my metaphor was that is you're adding like hot sauce on to the most healthy meal ever because you want to spice it up a little. You don't just want the green vegetables. You want a little something to make it a little more interesting and the possibility of huge upside. You know, you don't want to not participate if Bitcoin does go to like $200,000. It's a beautiful thing. This way you get to have your cake and eat it too. And I think that's what people are finding. We talk a little bit about individual stock picking on our show and you know, a lot of investors might just decide that stock picking is just too complicated for them and it's not something they want to do. They don't want to be an active investor. Then they might dive into the world of ETFs and discover that there are just what feels like countless options in that realm as well. So how can investors go about narrowing down their selection of ETFs to put together a diversified portfolio that suits their needs? Yeah, there's 2,600 ETFs last time I counted. It's a little overwhelming. There's like 12 blockchain ETFs. Okay. So first, I think top down, think about your portfolio like a pizza pie or a pie chart. How much do you want in equities? How much in bonds? That's actually the most consequential decision you can make. Once you get to the asset class, what you pick in there isn't as consequential. It's more important how much you want at the asset allocation level. So if you say 80% stocks, 20% bonds, once you get to the into the 80%, you know, obviously, a lot of people just buy, like, say, the Vanguard 500 or the iShares 500 ETF for three basis points. You own all the large caps, or even better, why not buy the total market ETF? ITOT and BTI are two popular ones. They hold 4,000 stocks. They charge 0.03%, and you put that in your 80% or your 60%, and you're pretty good. And then on the bond side, the same thing exists with the aggregate bond ETFs, BND, AGG. A lot of people that's essentially like called the 60/40, but I guess the millennial might be higher on the 60, maybe 80. Bonds are actually pretty good, not this year, but as offers sometimes, but it's your choice. You Maybe you don't want bonds, but you have to decide that first. And then obviously, I think looking at something very cheap and popular, Vanguard, BlackRock, or Spider, diversified, broad market ETF probably makes sense. Then now that's covered, that's kind of the easy part. What to put on top? And like, if you're old, an older person, you might want an ETF that produces income. So what do you do? Do you go to like a dividend grower ETF or a dividend income ETF? You know, do you go after the high dividend payers? Maybe it's a tough call because you have to weigh those different risks. And then if you want a blockchain ETF, do you go to one of the more popular companies or one of the newer ones that's more in the crypto world? Some have less holdings than others. Some are going to own, I think they probably all own MicroStrategy, but they're going to own like different stocks. And I think my main point on that is once you decide on a theme to play or income or whatever you're looking for, you know, get a list of ETFs that are in that and just look at the holdings. I mean, you can't go wrong there because all an ETF is, is what's in the portfolio. Other things that I recommend looking at are standard deviation because standard deviation is such a great metric. What you want to do is look at the standard deviation of like S&P 500 SPY, right? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's 10%, 12%. That standard deviation is just telling you likely how much it's going to go up or down in a year. So 12% is giving you an idea. It's almost like the ski slopes, green, blue, or black diamond. And then look at what you're buying. So if yours says 25 and you know the S&P is 12, it gives you an idea for how bumpy the ride will be. And same with bonds. Some bond funds might be two, three, four, and that gives you an idea of good. This is going to be nice and stable. Standard deviation is a very classic and just powerful. You need to know that. So the holdings and that, and maybe you can look at the weighting. Oh, that's getting to next level. You know, is it market cap weighted level weighting, which gives the biggest stocks the most weighting or equal weighting? Some ETFs weight by the amount of dividend that the stock throws off, or they're fundamentally weighted. So there's all different kinds of weighting schemes. But I think largely the standard deviation is almost more important because that's going to tell you like an equal weighted ETF would be more volatile because it gives more weight to the smaller stocks. Again, the standard deviation, you can't hide from that, that field. And I would also look at the expense ratio. Obviously, for the core, you want very cheap. 
for your total market, you don't pay more than like six, seven basis points. But for an outer layer, usually those cost a little more because their return can be much higher. But I would also consider fee out there. Like in the blockchain ETFs, they probably range from 95 to 65. But again, when you're talking about a handful of stocks and a lot of volatility, the holdings become more important than the fee because one could be up 20% and one up 10. Well, that totally dwarfs the 30 bips you saved on the cheap one. So you want to really highlight fees in the core, but then you want to highlight what the holdings are on the outer layer stuff. That would be my advice, even though I don't really give investment advice, but that would be my advice on sort of like how to think about approaching an ETF portfolio. Let's transition to talk more specifically about your book, The Bogle Effect, how John Bogle and Vanguard turned Wall Street inside out and saved investors trillions. I was personally very impressed with how deep into the subject you ended up going on the topic. What was your motivation for writing this piece? Well, first of all, I had spent a couple hours with him in different interviews before he passed away. So I had a bunch of hours of interviews. Anyway, he said some pretty prophetic stuff in his last interview in particular. And I thought, eh, I should get this on paper. Not every day do you hang out with somebody who has such a consequence. I thought it would gnaw at me. And that's when you know you should write about it, when it's going to gnaw at you and you should get, get out of your system. But then I also have to ask, do I want to live on planet Bogle for two years? Because when you write a book, you're like, it's like you're moving away for a while and you're going to live in this foreign place. And I thought, yeah, this guy had a lot to say. He was smart. I certainly wouldn't lose knowledge learning about this, but in effect, I gained a lot of knowledge and I'm happy I did it. But you know, it can be tiring studying the same thing over and over. But what I did to try to break it up a little was I interviewed 50 people who knew them, worked with them, criticized them, and I got to hear everything they had to say. So all that was just, it's like studying for like the CFA exam, but for Bogle for like two years straight. So I, I don't have a CFA, I don't have an MBA. But I really talk to people and I find I get a lot of knowledge from alternative methods. And writing a book, honestly, it's right up there in ways to get knowledge because it forces you to, to know what you're writing. And sometimes I knew it, sometimes I had to learn it. And I read a bunch of his books. That was what motivated me. And I also, as an analyst, I get to see the flow numbers every day and all the time. And I'm just stunned at how much Vanguard takes in. They take in $1 billion a day for the past 10 years. 10 years, a billion a day. That is so astonishing. We take it for granted, but it's ridiculous. And if you take all the other asset managers combined over those 10 years, they basically net out to nothing. So this firm is massive. And I thought, this needs to be deconstructed a little more. Plus, they're private. So nobody in my research department covered them because they only cover public stocks like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs. And I was like, I should get this on paper. And then also the final thing was Vanguard is getting into different things. So they do ESG, they do themes. They don't do themes, but they're forcing people to use themes for that reason I mentioned earlier. They're also into the wealth management business. They have a trading platform. They are into the behavior of investors has largely been influenced by Bogle and Vanguard. Vanguard allowed me a vehicle to really sort of almost like zoom down into these different worlds of Wall Street and sort of explain what's going on and how it's being reformed as we speak by Vanguard. And obviously, they're not the only people doing it, but Vanguard, it seems like a book about funds. But as you read, it's about all aspects of the market. I even talk about Robinhood and some of the recent stuff we saw with the meme stock craze. Um, I talk about ESG themes, a lot of the things that are in front of mind today. But the most important thing is that this company is going to seriously reshape the future. I mean, they already have, but it's going to get bigger and bigger. And I felt between the interviews and that data, I had to capture it. I found the story of how Vanguard was created pretty interesting. You know, it's almost a story similar to what happened to Steve Jobs, where he was ousted out of his own company. Could you talk about that story for us today of how Vanguard was initially created? 
Fogel is known as St. Jack by a lot of people, but he, there's a lot of circumstance played a role here. And back in the 60s, he ran a company called Wellington, which was an active manager. He was in the middle of the active management business. And the problem was he was selling conservative active funds in an era where the 60s, everything was going up like crazy. It was sort of like two years ago when all the ARC stocks like Peloton were just flying, flying up higher. And he was losing investors to companies like ARC at the time. So he thought, well, if I'm selling bagels, nutritious bagels, and the shop across the street is selling donuts, and everybody wants donuts, I should sell donuts too. He partnered up with a growth manager. And that partnership worked well for a while, but then it blew up when the 60s completely collapsed culturally and economically. And the market went down, I think about 40, 50% in two years. It was nasty, the 2008 style. And they had a falling out because Vogel thought these uh, gunslingers ruined his conservative company. And they thought he was like an old man, who, you know, whatever, like not old, he wasn't old yet, but it's sort of like too rigid. And they had a fight and the partnership was such that, they had, that his new partners could actually fire him because they had voting control. So they, they fired him. What they didn't realize is that he was still chairman of the funds themselves, which they didn't realize, but it's getting wonky here. But what I will say is a mutual fund is like a general contractor and they hire the investment advisor, they hire the administrator. So Bogle was still chairman of those 11 funds. And he used that power that he had to come up with a deal. And the deal was that everybody could agree on was, look, I'll let you guys invest. You stay over here, invest. You like doing that anyway. I'll do the back office work, the administration, the accounting. And this fund company we're going to set up will be mutually owned, where the funds will own the company. That way, it doesn't look like I'm just trying to get a payday here. So he had to sell to the board why he should stay on, run this company. And so by this weird situation, I can't tell you how rare and almost unheard of a mutually owned fund company is, where the funds own the company, meaning the investors own the funds. Once you set that up, it means that all future profits are not yours. Think about that. You will never become a billionaire. It's like, it's over. You have to just take the salary the company gives you and be happy with that. And nobody since has done it because who would? But he was in this prickly situation and it was a way to get out of it. But once he locked into what this could do to the fun world, he became a sort of evangelist towards this ownership structure, which anytime it gets assets in, the investors are the owners. So they vote to lower the fee with the profits instead of taking it. Because if the investors own the company, clearly they're going to do what's in their best interest, which Vogel really stressed as serving one master instead of two. The investors run things, but there's only one master, the investor. Every other type of structure, whether it's an LP, private LP, or a shareholder-owned company, you have two masters. The investors want returns. The people who own the company also want returns. And part of their returns come from their fees. That tension exists. I'm not, I didn't try to judge asset managers and say like everybody's bad who does this, but there is an inherent tension that Vogel solved. But what he sacrificed was ever becoming filthy rich. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. It just reminds me of a concept Jim Collins has called the flywheel effect. We here at TIP love studying Jim Collins and his work. And he has this idea, the flywheel effect from his book, Good to Great. It essentially lays out this phenomenon where a little bit of success attracts more success and creates this flywheel that is extremely difficult for competitors to disrupt. You see this concept with many great businesses. You got Google, Amazon, and all these big tech companies. And the same thing with Vanguard. And for Vanguard, it's they lower the fees and them lowering fees ends up attracting more capital to their company. And since they're able to spread out the expenses over more investors, they're able to lower their fees even more. So it's just a virtuous cycle that totally. it's essentially impossible to compete with them. Flywheel is a perfect way to put it. I usually call it the upward spiral, but same difference. It starts to feed on itself. And he knew that because it's funny because here's a story Vogel tells in 1973 or four, he was the head of capital group for breakfast at an airport. And the head of capital group, which is a big active mutual fund company said, uh, I heard you set up a mutually owned fund company. 
And he said, yeah. And he, and he goes, if you do that, you're going to destroy this industry. Because he knew the flywheel and the upward spiral that would happen. And the fees would get lower and lower the more assets come in. And then more assets would come in, which is exactly what happened. And what's fascinating about that story, why I focus on the book, is that was a year before the index fund was ever filed or registered by Vanguard. In other words, the structure is the thing. The index fund was a nice byproduct and a perfect match for that structure. But anything that structure did was going to work because it was going to end up lowering fees. And anytime you lower fees in asset management, it usually the investors do better. Fees can really get in the way of returns, but people do need to get paid. And so I have a whole thing in the book about how fees aren't bad if you're starting out. Like if you run like $10 million, you kind of need to charge like 1% to like keep the lights on, hire people. What, what the problem was for active funds in the 80s and 90s is they got to be 30 billion, 40 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion, and they kept the 80 basis point fee. They never, so you're making 75 times more dollar fees. But the fee still seems small to every investor in the fund, which is 80 basis points. But dollar fees to me are one of the most underreported stories. But it doesn't matter. Investors sniffed it out by realizing, wait, Vanguard actually charges 10 or 5. You charge 80. I'm moving over. But I think Active did themselves a disservice by not sharing some of those economies of scale. Not van- they didn't even need to go as far as Vanguard. They could have shared just a little and lowered their fees, banked some goodwill, and their outperformance rates would have been better. So it is a classic business story also of the Steve Jobs rule, which is if you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody else will. And they didn't do any cannibalizing of themselves over the years when they really could have. They had a lot of gravy. And so I do write about why they were disrupted. And I do it gently. Some of these firms are clients, some are adapting. And I probably would have done the same thing. And I say that, like, I probably wouldn't have lowered the fees myself. I would have like, sponsored a sports stadium. I would have uh, hired a bunch of people, gotten a shiny new office. It's human nature. But that's why the book's about this other guy. Yeah, he truly revolutionized the industry. One of the ideas that stuck out to me in the book was Vanguard offered this extremely low-cost index fund because they wanted to. And that led to all of these other companies having to lower their fees because they saw all these assets going to Vanguard. So Vanguard offered these products that had low fees because they wanted to, whereas the other competitors, they were just forced to bring them down. Yeah. And that mattered to a lot of people. I think people can sniff that kind of thing out. That said, the people who lowered them, they swallowed their pride and said, okay, we've got to get into this business. Some of those companies are very well run, like BlackRock and Fidelity, and they have uh, customers who like them. So in a way, as Bogle said, you know, if they have to be forced kicking and screaming, there's a lot of social worth from them doing that. And this is also part of why I wanted to write the book is that I just talked about Vanguard taking in the money, but most of the rest goes into Vanguard funds that people just basically were sort of forced to create because of them. And that explains almost all the money invested in America today. In a way, even though nobody else copied the mutual ownership structure, they kind of are governed by it in a way. This is what Bogle did. And and Bogle went even further in one of his quotes, which I didn't even know until I researched this project, was he said that, we'll know Vanguard's mission has begun to create a better world for investors when our market share starts to erode. And again, I I found that really wild because can you find anywhere else in the history of asset management, if not business, where the CEO tells the staff, our market share eroding would be like good and it would create a better world? And that, I think, speaks to the different trip he was on. This guy was not out to do what most people do in capitalism, which is to make a lot of money. He was just out to do something different. And it's fascinating. And the thing is, Vanguard's market share is not going to erode for a while. It will eventually, but it's still on its own, this like hockey stick trajectory up. So his dream is really far from even being realized, let alone over. Yeah, that reminds me of a stat you mentioned in the book where Vanguard currently has 
29% market share in assets, yet they only bring in 5% of the revenues. And that stat alone is just very telling. And I want to talk a little bit more about John Bogle. In the foreword for your book, Matt Hugan calls Bogle a personal hero of his. And in the intro of your book, there's a Warren Buffett quote. It says, uh, if a statue is ever created to honor the person who has done the most for American investors, the hands-down choice should be John Bogle. Now, why has Bogle been so monumental to everyday retail investors? And what might some people miss about the impact he made? So over the 45-year period that Vanguard's existed, I come up with about a trillion dollars that they have saved investors. That's not how much money Vanguard has taken in or has moved. That's how much revenue would be in Wall Street versus in an investor's pocket. That is a stunning amount of money. So you could argue he was the greatest philanthropist ever just for that effort. And people know this. I mean, I'm not inventing... I didn't uncover Bogle out of like... He wasn't like hiding. People may have heard of him, but I will say it was a millennial publication that gave me somewhat of the motivation to write the book because I wrote a story about it for Bloomberg Opinion about how the money savings, I did the calculations to get to that number. Then somebody from Deadspin wrote a piece about my piece with a much more millennial type style. And then someone from The Billfold, which is a millennial publication, basically wrote about that. And their headline was, some guy you've never heard of saved us all billions of dollars which kind of sounds like a BuzzFeed headline. And this some guy, I thought, okay, well, clearly maybe the younger generation doesn't know. And it's a good story. And it's a timeless story. This story will, you know, it's captured, it will last, hopefully it will inspire younger people as well. But I had to get over the fact, and I was challenged by the fact people did know who he was, a lot of people in the industry, especially. So I went above and beyond with data. And I went above and beyond by interviewing so many people who could put their two cents in And all of the interviews you read are exclusive interviews I did for the book. I had to interview somebody for an hour, listen to it back on the recorder, take like, say, two pages of the best quotes, and then pick the three best quotes from those two pages. So you're seeing the best stuff out of 50, 60 hours of interviews. And I did that because I'm trying to really bring to life something that and offer something new to a story that is somewhat known. But that's, I hope, of what to accomplish. But I do think it's interesting to read a book about somebody on Wall Street who did something good also, because most of the stuff you see and read in the movies is the Wolf of Wall Street, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, the big short. Like It's a lot of people just trying to like actually rip off small investors or they blow themselves up. This is like probably the biggest and best happy ending of a Wall Street story. <laughs> but that's also a challenge because people like dirt and juice. And there's not a ton of that in here. I try my best to give conflict and stuff, but there is no destruction or fall in the end. But hopefully the amount of impact and that I'm able to capture and all of those interviews helps offset that. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is just people came around to really trust him and trust Vanguard. He's dealing with people's real money. And there's almost this stigma, like you mentioned, around Wall Street and society that they're just out there to take your money. And this has led to many people, sadly, just completely avoiding the stock market. I agree that he has made just a tremendous impact on the financial sector that many people don't appreciate. And it kind of reminds me of Buffett, how people would invest fortunes with him because not only was he a genius, many of the investors would bet their life savings on Berkshire stock because they knew they could trust Buffett and Munger and the board. And I think something similar applies here to Bogle. Yeah. And you bring up the word trust. And I get asked this question a lot from people. They're like, well, why is Vanguard still taking in a billion a day when all these other companies have low-cost index funds? And some of them, by the way, have gotten cheaper. Bank of New York has zero fee 
total market ETFs these days. I mean, it's only three basis points cheaper, but they are like Vanguard isn't the cheapest anymore. Even Fidelity offers cheaper index funds. Remember that Billy Joel song called It's a Matter of Trust. And I keep thinking of that when I think of the answer because trust is huge. Trust takes a long time to build, whether it's a company or a relationship, but it's built over time. And people have so much trust for this company. They are Boy Scouts, I think, uh, and seen as just very honest and trustworthy. And especially when Bogle led it, and he frequently called all the investors honest to God, real human beings with souls. And he wanted Vanguard to stick to that and remember that these people are all actual people. It's not just a bunch of numbers. And that's something that Vanguard is challenged with today. There are now 30 million investors, 8 trillion. And there's been some complaints about the customer service that they have is not as efficient. And Bogle feared this. He feared it getting so big that it would become like a bureaucracy where people wouldn't have that connection with the investor base. That said, Vanguard has so much trust built up, they can withstand a little bit of an issue here or there. And it's still a very sturdy foundation. Which, by the way, what's interesting about Vanguard is 97% of the assets that are in Vanguard came after Bogle stepped down as CEO. This guy built a foundation that is so sturdy. And that's what also I thought was fascinating is 87, I think it's 87% of Apple's market cap came after Steve Jobs left. There are cases of very visionary people who do all what they do, and then it just takes off, like that flywheel effect that you mentioned. But the foundation is hugely strong, but it doesn't mean it can't change. And Bogle, in many of his books, said Vanguard is the fourth company to be the leader in the fund industry by market share. And the three others thought they were going to be around for a while too. And they're all, they fell from grace. How will we make sure Vanguard doesn't do that? And his two big things are, we don't really focus on active funds. We just give you the market. Therefore, you can depend on that. That's different than buying into a hot active manager. The second thing was the treatment of and seeing the investors as human beings and of acting that way. Those two things he thought, as long as we do that, we'll be good. What do you think drove Bogle to operate the business the way he did? He certainly didn't do it for the money. So I'm curious what your thoughts are around what drove him to set up the company the way he did in that mutual structure. I asked everybody that question and everybody's answer was, that's a good question. Because again, it's just not normal to turn over all the future profits and then make a whole career out of saying this is the way to go. So I have a chapter called Explaining Bogle, where I try to break down the ingredients that would make this person. And there's a couple of things I think that are important. One, he grew up in the Great Depression. He knows what it's like not to have anything. He's also of the World War II generation, which was like, I remember my grandmother, she didn't throw anything away, like Sprite cans in her closet, or like you couldn't even see the Sprite label anymore, but she would not throw them away. Bogle, I you know, was told by his son, wore the same khakis for 50 years. So he was just a guy who saved and didn't spend. And that, that's a classic World War II generation. He's not a boomer. So I think the Great Depression helped. His great-grandfather was also a sort of antagonist and populist. And he wrote about the fireman's insurance in the, like, the late 1800s. And he sounded a lot like Bogle. So there's a little DNA involved. I also thought that the 60s, that period I mentioned where he took the bait of the high-flying growth era and tried to sell donuts... And when it blew up in his face, he thought, I'm never selling donuts again. So like real life experience is almost better than like anything you can read. If you feel it, go through it. And that happened early. He was in his early 40s when he set up Vanguard. So he had that good lesson of like, don't take the market bait. These are cycles. Just stick to the bagels. And I think that was important. And I also think, you know, Princeton obviously was a great university for him. But the other thing is his heart. Here's a guy who was told he wouldn't live past age 35. He had a very bad heart. Had to go to the hospital constantly. When he played uh, squash and racquetball, they would bring a defibrillator onto the court with him just in case he passed out. 
he had had a heart transplant uh, later in life in the 90s. And so this guy was always, death was always lingering. And I think it actually motivated him to have a purposeful life in a way. And then I also think things like he was a big, big Bible guy. Not that he was like hardcore, but he loved the text. The text is a lot about the underdog eating the big guy. And he always bring up that quote of the cornerstone, or the rejected stone becomes the capstone. And he loved the stories in the Bible, although he wasn't heavy-handed religion, but he loved the stories. And the, I think he felt he was a character in that book, to be honest with you. I think he really got a lot of that. And he also was a fan of poetry, old poetry in the 18th century. So I think he almost like, you know, there's that phrase, like, make your life like the own movie you want to see. And I think he did a lot of that. And I think this mutual ownership structure gave him such a sense of purpose. And it filled a lot of what he needed. And what he needed wasn't money, it was this. And I think that's really what drove him. Again, that's unusual for this industry. I love it. The rise in the assets under management for Vanguard over the years is just astonishing. They started in 1975. They hit a trillion dollars in AUM in 2006. And today their assets sit at around 7.2 trillion. And you know, it makes me wonder if you've studied the idea if there is an index fund bubble. You know, we have these trillions of dollars flowing into index funds. These people are buying every month, regardless of the prices of these stocks that are in the funds. So I'm curious what your general thoughts are on that idea. It's a try to break this down in a chapter eight called Some Worry with quotes because some are worrying. And I think most of it's, it's meaningless. Look, at the end of the day, all that's really happened over the past 20 years is people went from buying an active sort of, let's say, fidelity fund that owns like the popular stocks, but maybe in weightings that are slightly different than the benchmark. But you're still owning JP Morgan and Apple and Amazon and AT&T. We call that closet indexing, where you're, you're pretty close to the indexing. We charge 70 bips. All that's happened is people went from closet indexing to actual indexing. So they're just owning all those stocks for three basis points. Uh, the metaphor I use is uh, the CD to the MP3. I think indexing and ETFs are similar to the MP3. They're just way cheaper and more flexible to get the same thing. It's not like indexing has invented stock investing, just like the MP3 didn't invent music. You're just buying whatever music you like in a better way, cheaper way. It's a format change. That said, index funds do buy stocks indiscriminately. If the stock has a higher market cap, it's going to buy it more because that's where it sits in the index. The market cap, though, is determined by active managers. And that's why the S&P 500 can have like a stock like Macy's fall out of it and Tesla comes into it. The reason Tesla got into it is because active managers like Tesla. And the reason Macy's fell is because active managers hated Tesla. Active controls what's in the indexes. So in the indexes, you are somewhat riding the coattails of active, but they are definitely dictating pricing. That said, let's say a stock like GE, which went to the gutter in early 2018, I believe it was, went down 50% in like half a year because of the bad earnings report. And then ETFs and index funds, the LG took in a ton of money during that period, but it still went down 50%. Now, would it have gone down 52% if it wasn't for those bids coming in from the index fund flows? Maybe. So I think if anything, index and the rise of indexing might put a little bit of a baseline on stock sell-offs because there's a bid coming in. But overall, I think anybody over the past couple of years can see with meme stocks and Tesla and Peloton, that indexing is not controlling prices here. Otherwise, we wouldn't see some of these stocks go up and down. So until we stop seeing that, I'm fine with this. I mean, indexing is a great way for people to get the value. Also, keep in mind, indexing is not uniform. The S&P 500 actually has criteria to get in. There's a human committee that has absolute discretion over it. That's why Tesla was late to get in. And then the Russell 1000 has their rules. Then there's like, oh, I'm going to own maybe a total market. That's different. And then there's different indices within mid-cap and small-cap 
and then you get to international. Some hold uh, now, some hold China, some don't. Indexing isn't really all uniform either. Just like active isn't that active either. So in the book, I sort of try to explain to people that the real trend here isn't active to passive because some active is very passive and some passive funds are pretty active-ish. It's not broker to RAA, which is also another big trend. And it's not mutual fund to ETF, which is a trend. It's high cost to low cost. Within every one of those categories, you just see people, I call it the great cost migration. So I try to explain that that's really what's happening here. Also, one of those stats that I think your listeners will like is that if you take the last 10 years, people are like, oh, well, passive equity index mutual funds and ETFs took in uh, $2 trillion in assets. And some people will even say, they're creating a stock market bubble. I'm like, dude, the stock market grew by $43 trillion over those 10 years. There are many other forces at play here. Households, institutions, hedge funds, foreign investors, ETFs and index funds, or quote, passive own about 17% of the stock market. So they're still a minority owner. Households own 40% of the stock market. Again, there's plenty of things going on. And the other thing is a lot of times people say, oh, well, indexing ETFs distort the market. They distort things. I think distorted is the natural state of the market. Because then those people also say, well, the Fed is distorting the market. Or options, the rise of options trading by Robinhood people is distorting the market. So distorting the market has now become the way active managers sort of skate their underperformance or frustration with how things are going. Because going back, I had this guy who's a history buff that I interview. This distorting thing and claims of distortion has been going on since the market started. It's just the way it goes. People always think it's distorted. They always worry. And so I don't know. I think it's, most of it is way overblown from like parties that might feel a little threatened by this potential trend or this trend. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. 
Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You mentioned a ton of great points there, and I can't help but think of recently Facebook and Netflix will miss earnings and they'll go down 20 or 25%. And that's not like the ETFs are just like dumping their Facebook and Netflix shares. It's because these active traders and these algorithms, you know, it's hard to say that ETFs have this just massive impact on the market when you see these 20, 25% fluctuations. And you mentioned one big chunk of Vanguard's AUM. And that is their advisory business, which I don't think a lot of people know about. I personally didn't know a lot about it before reading your book. How has Vanguard helped transform this industry in particular? Well, it's just beginning. They're kind of where Vanguard was in the 80s with mutual funds. They just started it like five, six years ago. And they really started it because there used to be, you had to go find Vanguard on your own. So you went as an individual investor and, and started investing with Vanguard, sort of do it yourself style. Those people are now pretty wealthy. <laughs> they're boomers. They're older. Um, even though millennials like Vanguard too, they're still those early investors are, are wealthy. They need help now with estate planning and taxes and this stuff. So Vanguard's like, okay, well, why don't we help we create wealth management for them? So it was originally created to help the Vanguard mutual fund investors that were already there. But the good thing is, and the reason I think it will grow is that it charges a fraction of what a normal advisor charges. And you get a certified financial planner. So you get a human investor. It's not a robo. It's actual advice and planning. I wouldn't say it's the level of advice and planning that some very mega wealthy people will get from their own personal advisor. It's not that level. It's a little more widget-ish, but it's still powerful because it charges between 5 and 30 basis points. An advisor, you know, they're more like 80 to 100 basis points. So they have 300 billion about in assets. They have 1,000 certified financial planners already employed there. And as we know, the more assets they get, they're going to lower the fees because that's just how they roll. I have no reason to believe that Vanguard won't impact a big chunk of the advisory business, which ironically, a lot of advisors are really helped force and expedite the move out of active mutual funds into ETFs and mutual funds because they switch from getting paid by the mutual fund in form of a kickback or a commission or a load to getting a percentage of the client assets. But the percentage they take is like 1%. So in a weird way, they're kind of making a similar mistake that the active managers made in the, in the 80s and 90s. As they get bigger and bigger, I would advise them to share those economies of scale now and create goodwill before the Vanguard effect hits them too. But I think there's a good chunk of advisors that will get disrupted. And Vanguard isn't alone. Schwab has an advisory business. And the robo-advisories like Betterment, I think really spearheaded a lot of this. A lot of younger people use Betterment for the same reason. They're like 20, 25 basis points. And I think for most people, that's fine. I will say the 1% advisors, there's going to always be a market for real uh, high need wealthy people. 
or people who are specialized, say they just service the bass fishermen of the world. And if you could like, get into one community or a local area or do a specialty, let's say you're really good at uh, the tax part, those people probably are going to do fine, even with Vanguard in the picture. Vanguard doesn't disrupt everybody. They just tend to disrupt anybody overcharging for an under-delivering. And again, this, that's why I call it the Bogle effect and not rise of the index fund, because this, this effect is not limited to index funds. And being an advisor, by the way, if you're going to be a, a true advisor, wealth manager to wealthy people, you can't just have mutual funds and ETFs. You have to have private equity. And so Vanguard just partnered with a private equity firm. Imagine if they get into that business. They charge a lot over there. And then it's possible they move to crypto. They, they keep denying it. I actually wrote a bit saying they will be in crypto within 10 years. But the more they have to service very wealthy people who want things that are not just mutual funds, it's going to push them into all these non-Boglian places. And it's going to get interesting. The wealth management isn't just something to watch for the wealth management business. It's where it's going to push Vanguard. And again, that also inspired me writing the book because I wanted to try to explain to people, this is way bigger than the index fund. You know, you mentioned crypto and I'm pretty interested in Bitcoin in the cryptocurrency space. One of the big issues is that Coinbase and all these other companies are charging transaction fees in excess of, say, 1%. And I just think of Coinbase, Vanguard's going to eventually come out to eat your lunch. And if Vanguard doesn't, it's going to be Fidelity or whoever else is ahead of the curve on that. When the Bitcoin crowd saw that all the ETF people were so excited about the spot ETF, I, I think they felt like, oh, we're about to rock the ETF world. All these fuddy-duddy advisors and ETFs and this. And, and I said, guys, be careful what you wish for. ETF world could very much rock the crypto world, at least the intermediaries. The intermediaries, the exchanges in particular, are paid a lot. The fees are ridiculous. They're almost, I would say, make stockbrokers from the 70s jealous. Once you get a spot Bitcoin ETF, and once the BlackRocks and potentially the Vanguards come in and have a little price competition, in five or six years, what you're going to have is a spot Bitcoin ETF, a spot crypto basket ETF. They're going to charge, my guess is, they'll get down to 30 Custody will keep it above like 10, maybe 30, 40 basis points. And it will trade at a 0.01% spread. And you're going to buy it commission free. So the trading cost is nothing. And you pay 30 basis points for, the, for them to just take care of everything. That is going to sweep the country. And that's a powerful thing. And so the exchanges are going to get disrupted. And the market makers who can keep that 0.01%, that's important. Those market makers, I did a study that the crypto exchanges make four times the revenue that ETF market makers make for doing 136th the volume. Think about that. That's how efficient, lean, and mean the ETF world is versus the crypto exchanges. That said, capitalism is a sport and it's a great way to get new inventions. And the first to arrive should get rewarded. So to the people who are getting rich in crypto and set up the exchanges early, hey, look, that's capitalism. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that compression, you know... Ugh, you're going to get cost compression one way, one way or the other. I think a spot Bitcoin ETF, though, even though they want it because it'll make the price go up and they love the idea that the Bitcoin ETF will open up all this advisor money because advisors tend to like that structure and advisors have $26 trillion in assets. So even like a 5% allocation is a ton of money. I still think it's, if you're an intermediary in crypto, I would fear the spot Bitcoin ETF. I mean, I'd like it because it probably will help the price go up a little bit because you'd have more people coming into crypto, but I would fear your margins because this is just what ETFs do. For investors in Bitcoin, you would expect a Bitcoin ETF to be positive for Bitcoin in the crypto space. Am I understanding you correctly there? Eventually, yeah. There's a real problem with Gary Gensler, who he wants to show, I think, that he can put some regulation around the crypto exchanges. 
as my colleague James Safer said, he's sort of holding the spot Bitcoin ETF hostage. But the SEC put out a proposal to change the definition of the word exchange. And if it goes through and they're able to do this, crypto exchanges will instantly be under the SEC's sort of regulatory eyes. Once that happens, I think Gensler's fine with the ETF. He just wants it all to be within the Gensler world. It, like, you know, he wants to oversee everything. That we see maybe summer 2023. I don't think all that needs to happen. My personal opinion is they should have approved it seven years ago. Because an ETF, honestly, if you're worried about the exchanges, if, an, if a spot Bitcoin ETF is approved, obviously, we just talked about how it would cause cost compression, which is good for investors. The market makers who are big and have a lot of liquidity, they're not going to mess with shady exchanges in order to make markets in crypto. So if you want to work and get those big time US market maker dollars on your exchange, you're going to have to shape up. So it creates a natural police force by just approving the spot Bitcoin ETF. But I think that Gensler himself wants control, wants to check a box on his resume in order to, you know, and that view is just something in the way. But I think if you polled 100 people, 98, 99 would say, yeah, a spot Bitcoin ETF makes a lot of sense. And it certainly makes more sense than a futures Bitcoin ETF, which introduces 10 to 20% roll costs a year, which makes the crypto exchanges seem like child's play in terms of cost. This is the world we're in. We're all cheering it on. And I even I wore a shirt to the recent ETF conference that I got a custom made. It says, and still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Because a lot of times on Twitter, we'll see the SEC approve something like double leverage VIX futures ETF. We'll be like, and still no spot ETF. Or we'll see in Europe that they're already in a fee war over Polkadot ETPs. You know, some the, I haven't heard of the, some of the stuff they're launching out in Europe. And obviously that phrase, and yet still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Because the products they approve and the gap of time keeps getting larger and larger where that phrase makes more and more sense and comes up more and more often. And it's a big deal for us. We've read about it a lot. And obviously, we think uh, this Bitcoin ETF category could be easily $100 billion, $200 billion pretty quickly. A lot of money could be is at stake here. And then, of course, there's the race. If you're an issuer and you're out first, you're an instant millionaire. It's going to get crazy. I think we want them to approve three or four at once, at least, to give it a fair fight. But whoever's out first wins. I mean, the futures ETF pro shares had a, I don't know, three or four day head start, and they probably have 90% of the assets in volume. That's why it's fun. this is fun to cover. A, because of all the stuff at play, probably one of our top three topics that we cover because of all of the drama and what's at stake. It's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I constantly see the grayscale guys posted on Twitter saying that they're pushing for the ETF. They're pushing for the ETF while they're charging a 2% fee and have a 25% discount on their net asset value. Now, even with Vanguard as big as they are today, I'm curious what your take is on the role of an actively managed fund. Bogle's son was actually an active manager himself, and he was actually supportive of him choosing that path. So what are your thoughts around the role an actively managed fund can play? Bogle wasn't necessarily anti-active. And I talked to John Bogle Jr. And he said that his father always said, you know, good luck to you. It's a tough business, but some people can succeed. He never said active couldn't succeed. He said as a group, it's largely detracts from value because only the costs are so much that they just eat up a lot of the return. And again, they're all trading with each other. So only some can win, right? And then when you X out costs, you see the majority of them lose after costs. That's all Bogle was saying. I will say Bogle was proud of some of their active funds at Vanguard. PrimeCap is one and the Wellington Fund. And he writes about them a lot. Although he doesn't say like, oh, our active funds are so good because the manager has a PhD or this formula is so good. He really just raves on how the ownership structure was able to get their fees down low and the fund doesn't trade a lot. And by removing those costs, it lets the active fund have a better chance at success. And it's like bringing a gun to a knife fight in a way. And so that section I call Bogle metrics because it almost seems like sabermetrics where in Moneyball, the A's manager 
valued things like on base percentage more than batting average. So he didn't look at the sexy stats. He looked at some of the ones over here and built a team of lower cost players. So I feel Bogle metrics is how Bogle saw active. At the end of the day, I think Bogle, because Vanguard does have plenty of active funds, what he was really about was stewardship. And I think he felt some of the active funds weren't good stewards in not sharing those economies of scale. And that I think he thought was the problem. Not that they were active per se. And he also goes to great lengths, even though he's pretty savage, to say that you know, these are nice people, they're smart people, that's not their problem. The problem is they just they take too much out in costs and they, it's like trying to start a race like 200 yards behind the starting line. And you have to make that up just to get even with the runners. And that was his problem. And that's, that is a problem. It, there's, it's not really disputable. The math is there. It's hard. So where I think active is going to go now is people are, are not going to use the active that sort of takes little risks outside of the benchmark. They're just going to buy the benchmark in a cheap index fund. But what they're going to look for, as we talked about earlier, is crazy high active share active like ARC or thematic investing, something that can complement it. So active will still be there. It's just going to be a supporting player, I think, in the portfolio. And it's going to have to be very different. We actually have a theme we're working on this year that says that active share, which is how different you are from the benchmark, is going to replace alpha as the most important metric for an active manager to show. And active share doesn't necessarily mean alpha. And that's a lot of people steeped in studying this stuff are going to find that you know, hard to swallow because alpha is supposed to be what you're trying to get. I think institutions will still like alpha, but I think for the advisors and the portfolios that run passive, you're going to prioritize how different you are because they want a lottery ticket. They want the chance at a home run in that outer layer. They don't want the same stocks put on top of the same stocks they own, but with, oh, you had some alpha in the past. Let me try to get that and double up. I just don't think that's going to happen. So active is, is not going away. It's just evolving. And honestly, it's evolving because of what Bogle did. He's forced it to become supportive and different. But honestly, if you're an active manager, and I talked to the guy from the Janus 20, which was a concentrated active fund that was like ARC back in the day, I got to think that they might be more happy ultimately buying their 20, 30 best ideas. Instead of buying the index and like, should we overweight Amazon at 3% instead of 2 honestly think that's going to be more fun for them. Or going, you know, offering up some private equity, like or even crypto, crypto trading, NFT trading. I think active is going to find more fun and excitement away from that sort of closet indexing active anyway. So it could be a win-win for everybody. Are there any trends in the ETF space you're looking at or any trends you're excited about? One of the things we found that we found has a lot of value is you've got dirt cheap and shiny objects. We know those are two viable lanes, but there's a third lane opening, which is packaged trades. And this is where the SEC relaxed rules where you can actually use derivatives more liberally in an ETF. So there's a few companies, uh, Simplify in particular comes to mind, that are able to use options and, and futures and, and derivatives and swaps in a way to really sculpt some interesting return streams and provide hedges, especially with the 60-40 maybe both going down for a while because they both went up for a while. Some of these package trades that offer non-correlated returns, hedge fund type strategies, I think they're going to find a home. I think that is a lane that could grow. And I think it also shows that the ETF industry isn't just like spy. It's just a wrapper. And you can put a lot of interesting things in that wrapper. And I think that outside of Bitcoin and crypto is probably the most interesting lane, which is using derivatives to sculpt return streams. There's even a, a issuer that has innovator buffer shares where it says the first 5% of the loss is on you, but from 5% to 30, you don't have to suffer. But if it goes over 30, then you're back on the hook. And then it will do it like up to 10, over 10. It basically got all these ways to limit your downside, 
Of course, you have to limit a little upside too. But these kind of targeted outcomes are going to be interesting. And I, I'm excited. That's where the, a lot of the innovation is happening. That is very interesting. Now, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. I loved your book and I'm really, really glad you took the time to come onto the show today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and find out more about your new book? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for having me. I had a great time talking to you. I guess you could go to Amazon to buy the book. That's probably the easiest, most direct way. But then to find me, I'm on Twitter at Eric Balchunas. Believe it or not, that handle was not taken. I'm one of the few people, anywhere I sign up for a social media account, my name is totally available. And I think Twitter is probably the best place. I have my DMs open. I'm pretty available. I've had people from like Rutgers, where I went to college, reach out to ask for some career advice. I'll sometimes answer a question there. Sometimes I get some crazy that I'm just not replying to. But that's probably the best way to reach me. I also put out little sampler platter charts and stuff from our research. So you get an idea of what I do. Those will be the two places to find me. I will also plug my podcast, which is called Trillions, which is all about the ETF world. That's anywhere that you can find podcasts. And I do a TV show with um, Matt Miller and Katie Greifeld called ETF IQ on Bloomberg TV every Monday at 1 p.m. You can always go to ETF IQ on the internet and find all the past episodes. That's a fun show because it's very aesthetic. You know, that we have graphics and it's, we have cool guests. A lot of people who we have on become bigger deals later. Like we had Kathy Wood on four or five years ago. That show and the Sculpted Returns I just talked about, we had that guy on two days ago, the guy who runs Simplify. It's a good show to get ahead of what's happening. Because I always think ETFs are the Silicon Valley of the investing world. And that's how we cover them. So anyway, that's how you can find me in the book. And I'll end the plug there. That's plenty. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.